Fascinating Jobs podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Wilson. On this episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down with Zadok Leggett, the owner of Chapel Hill Forge, who's a blacksmith, metal fabricator, and custom wood sign carver. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen so that way we can grow our community. And with that, let's get into episode number 17 with Zad. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today, I am talking with Zadok Leggett. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So would you like to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? So my name is Zadok Leggett. Uh, Most people just call me Zad or Z. I am a uh, self-taught, more or less blacksmith, metal fabricator, hand-carved wooden signs. Um, Kind of just Whatever somebody asked me to do, I, I try to make their dreams come alive. <laughs> that sounds really cool. So could you explain a little bit about how you got into your craft? <clears throat> um, I was always uh, fascinated in the metalsmith trade. I never really pictured myself here. I was a farrier, which is a guy that puts the shoes on a horse's foot hoof for a little while, and that kind of got the yearning to do more of it i guess kind of got the fires going the reason i got into being a blacksmith and a metal fabricator is uh my uh a job i was working was um being discontinued by the county and i was going to be out of work so i um needed a way to make a living and provide for my family and so we got into what we're doing now yeah, that sounds really cool. So you guys do all sorts of like handmade like metal crafts, and then you were mentioning that you do like some sign carving as well. So you guys really have like a cool business going on there. Yeah, we do the the, the blacksmithing side of things, which are the taking a piece of metal and heating it up and hammering it and making it become a different shape. And then I have the the welding side of things where I do a little bit more of the fabricating, making engine stands or who knows what whatever customer comes to me with needs and then the hand carved signs are you know for people's cabins or campers or beach houses or even their houses wow cool so you guys have kind of got like a tripart thing going on there so i think my next question would be like what is the process like for learning how to do like metalworking you can of course find youtube videos all over the place to go off of some of them are great some of them are not so great, but um, I took a few blacksmith classes in person from some guys who've been doing it for 30 some years and picked up some skills there and then just kind of were self-taught. So I just kind of messed around with stuff until I figured it out and, you know, did things a lot of times made a lot of mistakes until I figured out how to do it or how, how I wanted to manipulate the metal into the shape I wanted it. Read some books, watched some, some videos, uh, became a member of an association for blacksmiths, and talked to a lot of people who've been doing it for a lot of years, a lot more years than I've been doing it, and picked their brains and got them to kind of give me some insider secrets and trades of how to do the job. Yeah, cool. So I, it sounds like you've like kind of pulled your learning from a lot of different places, which is super interesting. So you were mentioning how you became a member of an association for blacksmiths. So could you just elaborate on that a little bit for people who don't know what that is? Yeah. 
So um, the association I'm with is called PABA. It's Pennsylvania Artist Blacksmith Association. And some of the guys are career guys like myself who do it for a living. Some guys are hobbyists. But, of course, with COVID-19, this has kind of made the getting together a lot harder. Usually, it's every other Saturday, or every other month on a Saturday, we would get together and somebody would show, do a demonstration or have some type of project in mind, and you could bring something that you're working on, and guys would get to vote on it, and there's all kinds of uh, tools that people would be selling, and you get to meet other blacksmiths and talk to them and... Uh, it's just kind of a a place to come together and all talk about the same thing that we all like to do. With COVID happening, we've only ever got one meeting in this year, and that's it. But a lot of us are still linked up with each other through phone numbers or emails or Facebook or Instagram and stuff like that. So a lot of us still you know keep in touch with each other. Or if you have a question, you can reach out to one of the guys. And I've had some things where... I'm not really sure what the right process is, but I know it can be done. So I've reached out to those guys and they've been able to help me. So it's been really worth the membership to be part of that association because of what I can get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds just like a nice kind of community overall just to be a part of and kind of like trade tips and advice because it seems like um, it's pretty like you guys kind of like each have your own separate businesses and it's like a little bit more solitary but then like it's a nice way to kind of like get together and converse and find other people who are like also blacksmiths yeah there's there's no definitely no of the um competing or well i'm doing that so you can't do that it's it's a lot of just being there to help each other out and and see the older guys helping the younger guys is awesome because that just shows that they want to see this trade continue on for years to come instead of it dying out. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. That's like something that's super important. Um, so the next question I guess that I would have for you is kind of like along those lines. Um, so what is like your favorite part about your job? I like the, um, the jobs where somebody brings me something and says, hey, this is, you know, something that, like a, a guy who I know, um, who's a customer, he's going to be bringing me a weather vane. Um, it, you know, goes on top of your house, tells you which direction the wind's blowing. Well, they had their roof redone, and they weren't able to have it put back on top because it would void the warranty. So he's going to be bringing me this weather vane, and he wants me to make some metal art out of it that they can stick in the yard and they can still enjoy it. It's just not on the roof. <clears throat> I really enjoy when people bring me something like that and they trust me to just let my creative juices flow and I can just kind of do whatever and I don't, I'm not really constricted and make something. And then when they come to pick it up and it's more than what they wanted and they're just so excited and they love it and they're just, you know, like a kid on Christmas opening up a gift. That's probably my favorite part of the job, just being able to make something out of nothing or take a bunch of things that weren't intended for that and repurpose them and make them into something cool that people enjoy. 
Yeah, absolutely. That does sound like super gratifying. And I know like I was talking to a cake decorator before and she had like a similar um, like thing to you. She said that she loves seeing people's reactions when they like get to pick up a cake because yeah, I think it's just like such a cool feeling to be able to like create something that's going to like be in somebody's backyard for a really long time or uh, maybe if they if they're eating it right after because it's a cake, then yeah. that's a little different. You're not thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, you kind of mentioned like the weather vane. So do you have like a favorite project that you've ever like worked on or a piece that you've created? Yeah, I um I was reached out to by a, a local township, and um, they <clears throat> we have an old railroad uh, bed where it's called the Enola Low Grade. And it's where the train used to pass through a number of years ago. Um, probably, I think, it stopped running in the 70s. Uh, but now it's a, a path that you can walk and hike or ride your bike at. And the local township reached out to me, and they wanted a bicycle rack that people could take their bikes and park them in this bicycle rack while they're loading or unloading their car or if they're sitting at the picnic table um and they wanted it somewhat train themed because of it being on a railroad bed uh so i reached out to some local friends who worked for a railroad company to see about getting some railroad rails and they were able to get me two different pieces one of them was <clears throat> from the 1800 late 1800 era and more than likely was a rail that had been on that railroad bed at one point in time prior to them ripping the rails off he happened to find it hidden in a big pile of brush uh, where they dump all the, the scrap metal um, so the history of that old railroad rail being put back on the same railroad bed that it possibly had been on and having the markings on it so any train historian can look at the back of that railroad piece and see where it was manufactured the date it was manufactured um all that history on it and then being able to put that together as a piece of <clears throat> i guess you could say artwork and something that can be used that uh people can enjoy was really fun and it's only about five miles from our shop and our house so we get to drive past it all the time and see it sitting out there on the railroad bed wow that is super cool like the history part and also i think that you brought up like a really good point that like it's really cool to just see like your art that's like really functional too because not only is it like cool to look at and it's like really cool to see the history behind the tracks but you can also like see people like parking their bikes there and it's like something that's like a cool part of the community we made it that it looked like there's it was part of the railroad bed there's railroad ties the wooden ties and it's attached to it with the, the same type of plates um so yeah we can we have some pictures that we can send you yeah that sounds fantastic that sounds like such a cool project it was fun it was uh it was a lot of work and it was a lot of uh trying to think outside the box and um a lot of math and I, I'm not crazy about math but there's a lot of different angles of math and um, but all in all it came together pretty cool yeah that sounds great I'm not so much of a math person myself either but yeah so I totally get that um, so I guess this is kind of like transitioning into my next question which would be like you know what's the most challenging part of your job 
most challenging would probably be quoting jobs. You know, you can pretty well figure out the cost uh, that you're going to need for material, so forth, but when it comes down to something you've never made before, there's a lot of troubleshooting and a lot of problem solving, and you're going back to the drawing board multiple times, and so sometimes you quote a job for, say, two, two and a half hours, and it ends up taking six hours, and that's kind of frustrating and stressful because you, you worked twice as hard, twice as long on a project, but you're only getting paid for half of that time because that's what you quoted. Yeah. So the being able to, you know, guesstimate the amount you need in materials, and, and for the most part you know what your cost of materials are. You know, with steel, they vary. Sometimes the prices are higher, sometimes the prices are lower depending on what the economy is doing. Um, but then you also have to work in, you know, your, your, your power that you're using, the electricity you're using, the consumables, your grinding, the grinding discs or your belt sander disc, uh, <clears throat> any welding wire or propane you're using or coal. So my forges are coal forge and propane forge, the methods of heating them. But then also you got to you know, take into account the time it takes you to drive to your steel supplier and the time it takes to drive back and the cost of fuel drive there and back. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that I think people don't really think about when they're buying something handmade from uh, an artisan or a handcrafted a handcrafter that there's a lot of things that go into it. It's not just them sitting down making it. It's the time that they've put into designing it. It's the materials. It's the cost and to go get those materials. And all those things go into that one small little thing that that person made. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, like, that was a really good explanation because you kind of explained, like, you know, like the fuel that goes behind it and just like all sorts of like small things that you maybe wouldn't think about like even if you're the person like you know who's kind of pricing it out so um I guess my next question would be like when you like get a new job and like it's something that you've never made before like how do you go about like deciding like what the price is <laughs> that's always the the difficult thing um a lot of times it's very similar to something I've already done before so I can kind of base it off of that. Sometimes we we bid at a higher cost and let the, the customer know that there's a good chance that it'll be lower, but we don't know until we really get into it. It's a hard one. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you end up doing a job and you kind of lose your rear end on it. You, you don't make the money off of it you, you planned on because it took you longer or it took more materials or more consumables, but then you know, and then in the future, when you get that job again, you know what it's going to cost. Um, I, I have a, a individual that I do some wholesale items with, and <clears throat> I quoted it at one cost, and then I let them know that, you know, this, this set here we're going to sell for this, but the next set I'm going to have to do it at this, because now I know how much time it takes how much material it takes, and how long it takes. And they were okay with that. 
Um, but it's a it's a very custom item that they had me do, and they can't get it anywhere else. So um, I guess I kind of have the, the upper hand on that. That you know they could possibly go somewhere else, but that person's going to have to either charge the same amount as what I'm make charging, and they don't have any idea how I did it, or they're going to have to go through the same process I did. They might lose out in the first go-around, but then they'll have to make it up in the second go-around. Yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of like a good <clears throat> strategy. It's just to kind of like see and like adjust definitely, like even if it's with the same customer or person, because it's really important that like you're kind of like getting like the out, like the work that you're putting in. And I think that's something that's super important that we've talked about like on previous episodes is like with people who are just starting out in kind of like a artisan craft business, like maybe they're undercharging at first and then like they eventually kind of like work up their price. So I was just going to ask, like, is that something that kind of you've done too, is like you undercharged oh. <laughs> in the beginning and then maybe like now you're starting to realize that like. Yeah, we've looked at products and we couldn't believe that we were selling them for as cheap as we were selling them for. And those same products nowadays are three to four, maybe five times as much as what we originally were selling them for. You know, as you as you grow in your business, so does your skill. Um, you know, you look at your fire, like my fire pokers, the ones early on probably didn't look near as good as the ones I'm making now. But that's five years of honing that skill and making them. Um, it's the same amount of material, it's the same process, but handcrafters a lot of times, or people that do handmade items, they don't always charge what their, their product really should be worth. You know, when you look at something that you made, you're like, oh, it's only worth five bucks. But then somebody else would look at it and go, oh my god, I'd pay $50 for that. that that's worth $50. So you don't always see the value in it, and that's something when you're starting out, you have to kind of talk yourself up, I guess, to yourself, and say that it's worth that, and not, oh, well, we'll just make it this, and and kind of limit yourself. Um, it's kind of hard to explain or trying to figure out how to explain what I'm, what I'm getting at here, though. Yeah, no, definitely. I understand. Like, I think that you're just saying that, like, yeah, like, you have to, like, really take into account, like, okay, like, how hard did I work on this and not, like, short sell yourself because... Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, and we've also noticed that depending on where you're at really depends on your sales. You know, like, we, we've done shows... Um, up until this whole COVID deal and some areas you just aren't going to sell. It's just not your, your market, your people. And then other places you just, you can't catch up because you're just making so many sales on that show. But you also got to realize that not, not everybody is your market to sell to. You know, some people go to a craft show or a vendor show and they treat it like a yard sale and they try to, well, what would you take this for it? And don't limit yourself to thinking, well, I have to sell it for cheaper because it's a sale. No, you're, you're, you're really cheating yourself by doing that. Your quality item is worth something. And don't sell it for cheaper just because it's a sale. 
because then you're going to get into that, that habit of just constantly selling your stuff and selling yourself short. Yeah, definitely. Is like a th thing of what I'm trying to get at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, like, if you kind of, like, make an exception for one person, then, like, somebody else is going to come along and be like, hey, like, you know, you sold that to them for, you know, 50% off. Like, I want that same deal. And then yeah. it just kind of, yeah, then, like, you just can't get ahead of it. I totally... I totally get that. So you were talking about how like you were going to like craft shows and artisan shows. So um, I guess like, you know, for people who are just kind of starting out, like, you know, no matter what kind of um, craft you're into selling, like, um, could you just explain a little bit about like how you go about like, do you just kind of sign up for a booth there and then go or how do you kind of like navigate that part? So the best advice I can give for this is get yourself a notebook and keep notes. You know, did the event have good signage? Did the event have good advertising? Was your space good? You know, was it clear on where you're going and how to get there, where your booth was, what the weather was that day, uh, how much you paid for your booth spot? All those things, all the all the details, because next year you're not going to fully remember what that event was like, how many people were there, what your sales were, what the weather was. And all those things really matter. Um, the last year we did shows. We did 50 shows in nine different counties. Oh, wow. And, that, yeah. And some of those drives are like three to four hours away. So for us, setting up, it takes about an hour for us to set up our booth from the time we pulled out of our trailer to having it ready to make the sale. It takes about an hour. If I'm doing demos where I'm actually showing people how I blacksmith, I have a mobile setup, it takes about an hour and a half to, for us to set up. Yeah, so uh, with COVID-19, it really shut down a lot of the craft shows to nothing. They're starting to come back now, but with us having a one-year-old, it's just not the market for us to, you know, my wife's pregnant, we have a one-year-old trying to wrangle on a one-year-old and eventually a, a newborn at a craft show is just not the, the ideal situation so we're going to just hold off on craft shows for right now but um we're comfortable with that because our sales are good online and so we feel that we can actually step away from them prior to that we didn't know if we could we we're we we're afraid to step away and just completely trust that our sales online were going to be what could sustain us and with this whole um, COVID thing, we found out that, hey, we can rely on just making online sales because we had to. So craft shows don't yet. The, the biggest thing with them is see how well they're advertised. Talk to other vendors that you might know that have done it or are going to be there. Uh, ask questions to the, to the event, the people who are hosting the event. You know, um, what's the attendance? You know, do you advertise? How much is the booth space? You know, each place, the booth space is different costs, um, different sizes. Typically, we had a 10 by 20 plate spot, um, which is about two to two and a half worth of vendor spaces compared to the normal 10 by um, 10 spot that a normal vendor would have. So, um, yeah, it, it, each place is different. Um, sometimes the, the costs are different because it's a different area. 
a firehouse Christmas bazaar is going to probably be a different cost than a wine mixer with some music at a vineyard. Sometimes the ones where it was just come set up and it's free, they they paid out better in sales than uh, paying twenty or fifty dollars for a booth spot. So don't discount that either. I mean, we've had some really great ones where it's just, you know, come here, set up, and do your own thing. No need to, to pay any booth space. Yeah, definitely. That's really cool. And I think that was, like, a good overview of kind of, like, what you should do at the craft shows. And I think, like, the main kind of thing that you were saying there was just to, like, be really alert and just kind of, like, be ready to kind of, like, learn and pick up on what's going around you and I think that was really interesting when you were talking about like you know how like your website sales and because of COVID like a lot of people have just been like shopping online instead so I think that would kind of be like the next part is so like you guys have like I checked out your website like it's a pretty cool like nice website so um how do people kind of like find you online like what are your strategies for that? Uh, well, first, we first just started out with Facebook and then uh, some Instagram and word of mouth and just really pushed that. Um, mm -hmm. So many people are like this, share this, click this, win this to get more likes on their on their social media. And that's great and all, but that's not organic. The, typically, those people are just in it for a win. And if they don't win, or even if they do win, they a lot of times will then unlike it and move on. We've always found that an organic like goes so much further than a non-organic like. You know, we have so many customers that are repeat customers. And by repeat, I mean like from our first year in business, just because we were genuine and we talked to them and... We had respect for them, and they just loved our business model and who we are and what we're about, that we've had them come back time and time again for a couple of years now, and it's an organic like. They follow us. They sometimes have become friends on our personal Facebooks or Instagrams, and we've really built a great network up that way, and those same people will then advertise for you and not charge anything they'll like a product that you made so they'll share it and then a friend of theirs or a family member of theirs will have purchased it and then they became an organic like and then you know they share it and so you know you have a hundred friends and those hundred friends share it 50 of their you know people that shared it it, it just slowly grows and before long, you know, you could have 300,000 people following you just by being organic and not, per se, being fake and trying to get all those likes and shares, but the people really don't truly like and share it. Yeah, so, yeah, I think it's just, like, really about, like, letting the work speak for itself and, like, you know, just kind of being, like, kind and genuine, because I think that's, like, yeah. refreshing, especially on social media, where there's, like, so much of that, like, kind of crazy just stuff out there yeah so we um we started there and then uh we my wife started to build the website herself and she got it to a certain point where it was good but it needed a little something more and we didn't know what or how to do that 
So then we started reaching out to some other businesses that that's what they do. They cater to building websites for small businesses. And um, it was probably six months or so that my wife met with this guy on Zoom and they built the website. And it is now what our website is now what it is because he did some stuff, she did some stuff, they did stuff together and built our website to what it is now. And um, it's not just sell, sell, sell and what we make to sell. It's our lifestyle. It's what we do. It's what we are into. You know, there's posts about how, how we homeschool. There's posts about us in our garden and our homestead and what we do on it and um, how in the midst of COVID we, you know, and this is also kind of goes to our Facebook, you know, we share our lifestyle so people can really understand who we are and what we're about. You know, in the midst of COVID we did house projects, but we didn't go out and buy the lumber or the materials. We scavenged across our property and made what we had here work just because it was a little bit of a funner way to do it. A lot of it is just being you and, you know, not trying to act like someone else. And that really helped, I think, us with our website and our social media. We just continue to add our content to it of what we do on a day-to-day basis. And people seem to really enjoy it. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's just about creating, like, just being, like, a really, like, nice, like, just having, like, really personable connections. And, yeah, like you were saying, like, just being kind of genuine and kind. And I think that people take generally well to that. And it seems like you guys have had quite the bit of success with your strategy. So, so yeah, I guess, like, then um, kind of my next question would be kind of like transitioning into some advice that you might have for people who are kind of like younger and coming up behind you on this business so like what traits do you think are like super important for being like a good blacksmith and or like business owner you know a lot of times people say i'm an artisan or um i'm very artistic and i have to laugh at that because when i was in school i hated 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 art class it I just did not like it. And I think now, looking back at it, it's because the art teacher wanted me to do it their way, and there's only one way to do it. And I understand that they're probably trying to teach a certain process or teach the method or the, the reason behind doing it that way. Now, I look at it, and I'm like, you know, I guess I am to a point somewhat of an artisan or an artistic nature as far as traits, I mean, like in metalworking, it can be hot. It can be genuine on your muscles and on your body. But it's also rewarding at time. At, at the same time. You know, in the wintertime, my metal is very cold. So it's you're holding a cold piece of metal. And it takes a long time to get it to do what you want it to do because you're having to heat it a lot more. But then in the summertime, it's not as it's not cold. But now it's already hot as it is standing in front of that forge, but now it's even hotter because it's the summertime. I guess you just have to be okay with not always being 100% comfortable. You know, sometimes you're going to be cold, sometimes you're going to be hot. Mm-hmm. You have to be flexible. It'd be like Gumby and, you know, <laughs> go, with what, go with the flow and, you know, have to um, overcome and adapt. Sometimes you have to 
go back to the drawing board. Um, you might get halfway through a project and you just do one little thing and it breaks. And you have to pretty much just come to the terms with that's going to happen. Um, I mean, you, you look at these glass blowers, they have the same thing. You know, they're all the way done and just a little tap ended up and it was too hot or too cold and the whole thing shatters and you have to start over again. It's not quite that with blacksmithing or metal fabricating, but Sometimes you do something and it just it just doesn't work out. Um, with my signs, I've gotten like all the way done carving a sign, and then all of a sudden there's a rotten spot in the wood that I didn't see or I couldn't feel, and I've got to go back to either how do I make this work or I got to start all over again. You got to have some real go-getter will, willing to just have to sometimes start over again and just push through. Sometimes, depending on what you're doing, like for our Christmas season, there's sometimes I'm working 14 to 16 hours a day oh, wow. just to get the orders done to push through to get those orders out to people so they have them in time for Christmas. But then January and February, it's crickets. So I get to kick back and be all cozy in the house next to the coal wood fire with my kids, and we can watch Christmas movies until we're done watching all the ones we have on DVD. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you have you have to you have some give and take that you have to do too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that was like a really good kind of range. So, like just to kind of recap, like, you know, flexibility is important in being able to adapt and just like kind of persevere through times that like might be difficult and when you were mentioning the glass blowing like i don't know if you've seen this but i like have been loving blown away on netflix yes yes this is not a great episode oh my gosh that show is like so like it's so interesting yeah i kind of want to try it i i think i kind of want to try to try some glass blowing sometime if i ever have the opportunity i think i'd like to try it and and see what it's about yeah, it doesn't seem like that much of a like a huge jump, other than like the material from like um like metalworking and glass blown because you know you've got a. Fr I mean, I'm by no means an expert. Like, stop me. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like you know you've got kind of like a furnace, and then you're kind of like working with like a heated material, and then when it kind of like cools down and everything. But yeah, like I've seen on the show, like some people will have like a huge finished piece, and then the whole thing just like oh, yeah. shatter. It's it's heartbreaking. Like to even yeah. to watch. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in that aspect that, you know, if I drop a fire poker or something or a bottle opener that, if anything, it might get a little scuff or a nick on it that I can clean up, but it's not shattering like theirs. Mm -hmm. That's definitely, you know, when I see that show, I'm like, oh, man, I feel so bad for them. They're just so far along, and then boom. Yeah, totally crazy. So I think that I just have, like, one final kind of, like, wrap-up question for you. So, um, like, if there was somebody, say, in, like, high school or college, like, that wanted to start, like, learning about or, like, trying metalworking, like, maybe they don't have, like, all the equipment, like, are there places they could go or, like, videos that they could watch or something that they could do to kind of, like, see if they're interested in that? Yeah, so, um, a lot of, like, if you want to try blacksmithing or coppersmithing or a lot of just these old world trades, a lot of places, the like historical museums, um, they put on classes, um, and 
Like, I know I took one of their classes. It was a two-day class. This is way early on before I even really had started the business. Um, you know, I had some history on blacksmithing through being a farrier and doing the, the showing of putting shoes on the hoofs of the horses. So I already kind of had some insight into that. But my, my wife took the class with me, and she had no insight. She had never touched anything blacksmith-wise. So we took that class together, and it was a two-day class. And they, this place, they provided the lunch and the material, but you had to get your own tools. Then we took another class a week later, and they provided everything for you. Both of those were historical preservation places, uh, museums, and they, they hosted the classes. So, you know, look in your area for those, and they, can, they might be doing those kind of deals. You could reach out to, you know, like, look and see if there's a PABA or a, a blacksmith association or a metal fabricator association or something like that and see about doing that. The other thing you could do is just stop into a blacksmith shop or a metal fabricating shop, a steel shop, and just talk, ask to talk to the owner and just express your interest. Mm -hmm. They may say, you know, you can hang out here and watch. They may say no, but don't let that put you down. You could go to another place, and they might say, yeah, sure, we'll bring you on as apprentice. You may not get paid, but you will learn the trade. You'll learn what, what the tools are and how to do this and how to manipulate the metal this way and just ask questions and ask questions. You, have, you can possibly look into getting a job. You know, they may offer you a job at some point. I took a blacksmithing class. The second one I took, one of the instructors got my number and went and would call me and say, "Hey, I'm going to be down at the blacksmith shop at, at this one historical society and uh, museum." And he's like, "You know, you're welcome to come down and hang out, and I'll be, you know, I'm going to be teaching this one person, but you can come down and, and start, you know, messing around." And he kind of brought me in as his apprentice. I didn't have to pay, and he would just called me up anytime he was going over to do that. And then I joined the association and he was a member of that association. And then there's times where I would have a customer that would call me and say, Hey, I have this project and it was something that I was not comfortable doing myself. So then I would call and say, Hey Dave, would you like this project? And he goes, well, it's your customer. That's your project. Why don't I come over and help you with it? Oh wow! And then I, oh, well, how much do you want for this? Nothing, nothing. I'll, you know, this is your customer, this is your job. And so he would literally just come to help me with this project and wouldn't require any payment from me or from the customer. He just was there to help me further my education and further my skill set. So really, I mean, short of what's already available for free on, like, YouTube, YouTube books, going into an in-person place and just asking if, follow them if you can you know be an apprentice mm -hmm. is probably the, the way i know of yeah. what a, a person could do uh if you're in high school i guess look at if you your school has an ag mechanics or a shop class i know when i was in high school we had shop ag mechanics and shop and that was working on small engines and welding and oxycetylene and that kind of stuff, and then I uh, went to Votech. You could 
get more specific in that area, you know, just in welding or in auto body. So look into their trade schools. There's a couple colleges around here that specifically touch just on those kind of things, just on welding, just on woodworking. And, you know, if that's something that's really your passion, then dig into it. Um, I had a long, a long time and a hard battle with the fact that I didn't go to college because I you know, had some learning disabilities. I didn't go to college, so I always felt like, you know, not having that college degree really meant something, you know, meant something that I, you know, was missing out or I couldn't get to the great job because of it. But, you know, these trade jobs pay a lot better than some of these other jobs with a college degree. I mean, an, an underwater welder pays like three figures. Uh, oh, wow. If you weld for a pipeline, you're looking at three to four figures. And if you don't mind being out in the elements or you know, using your body and working instead of sitting at a desk job, you can make a good living and not have a college degree. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was like really great. Like now listeners have like tons of great places to go if they're interested in learning about this, because I think that like, that's kind of like the big thing is just like, you know, like learning about it, like taking in, getting experience and seeing like what your passions are. And then you can kind of like you know, I think there's a quote that says, like, you know, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Maybe I'm, like, totally botching that, but... Um. No, no, that's pretty, pretty darn close. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the great thing about going into a trade job is they, they will train you and teach you how to do that job. And you're getting paid while doing that, you know. College is great for some things, but for some people it's not, and I wasn't one of those. But when you're done with college, you have all the student loans that you got to pay off. Yeah. And in a trade job, you're getting paid while you're learning. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, that's I think something that people don't realize about trade job is, you know, you get paid while you're learning, and when you're done in that three to four years time, you don't have to pay off any student loans because you were learning while you're working. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's like so. a really good point, especially for anybody who's interested in getting into those jobs. Um, so yeah. I think that's like a really good stopping place for our discussion today. Thank you so much for joining me. I learned so much on yeah, this no episode problem. and I had a really <laughs> great time talking with you. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for just coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Fascinating Jobs Podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Wilson. On this episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down with Zadok Leggett, the owner of Chapel Hill Forge, who's a blacksmith, metal fabricator, and custom wood sign carver. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen so that way we can grow our community. And with that, let's get into episode number 17 with Zad.